It's my pleasure to welcome Father Vivian Boland to deliver this year, this week's seminar. It's the last in the series this term. There'll be five more in this series next term, together with our annual colloquium and in July a conference on the philosophy of Herbert McCabe and other events which are appearing on our website as they are firmed up. This feels a bit like the Doctor Who serial on the three doctors because we have the former, the present and the future director of the Institute. Father Vivian was director from 2008 to 2011 and developed the annual program which I inherited. And he was already lecturer here in moral and pastoral theology and the thought of Thomas Aquinas. He then became Socius of the Master of the Order and is now Professor Aggregatus of Spiritual Theology at the Angelicum and acting director of the Institute of Spirituality there. Of his publications, it's worth mentioning a book in 1996 on ideas in God, according to St. Thomas Aquinas. In 2007, a book on St. Thomas Aquinas in the Bloomsbury Library of Educational Thought, and an article in New Blackfriars, St. Thomas's sermon, Puer Jesus, a neglected source for his understanding of teaching and learning. And more recently, a paper on Thomas Aquinas' Catholic education and the transcendental properties of truth, goodness, beauty and integrity in a collection on education in a Catholic perspective. So we look forward very much to Father Vivian's paper on the question, can Aquinas' sacra sana doctrina on teaching and learning be extracted from its place in Sacra Doctrina. Father Vivian. Thank you very much, Richard. Thank you very much for uh, the invitation and for your welcome. Um, I would certainly endorse what uh, John has said about your seven years as director of the Institute, the Aquinas Institute in Oxford. It has been transformed <laughs> um, since, uh, since uh, I left it those many years ago. And wish Oliver, of course, all the best. Um, I'm, it's always a pleasure to accept an invitation to speak at Blackfriars Oxford and an honor. And particularly in this year uh, of Jubilees, um, the, the, the eighth centenary of the arrival of the Dominicans in Oxford, the centenary of the return of the Dominicans to Oxford, and the eighth centenary of the death of St. Dominic. So I feel it as a particular honor uh, to be asked to speak in this particular year when we're thinking about those, um, those anniversaries and celebrating them and giving thanks to God for all that they mean. My title is perhaps a bit unwieldy, can Aquinas's sana doctrina sound teaching, healthy teaching, on learning and teaching, be extracted from its place in Sacra Doctrina, Sacra Doctrina Theology, Revelation, Faith and Theology. It's common to talk of the philosophy of education or of a philosophy of education, and sometimes to attribute such an undertaking to Aquinas. 
but the contexts in which he considers the question of teaching and learning are solidly theological, perhaps surprisingly so if we come to his work with some preformed idea as to where we might find that material. His use of philosophical sources and resources in clearly theological contexts is obviously not unique to this particular question of teaching and learning. And so a consideration of the relevant texts and contexts about teaching and learning, it can also serve as a test case for teasing out the relationship between sana doctrina, let's call it good philosophy, and sacra doctrina, let's call it theology, across the whole of his work. The two uh, main texts in which Aquinas talks about teaching and learning are in the Questiones Disputate de Veritate, question 11, his De Magistro on the teacher, and the Summa Prima Pars, question 117, article one, whether one human being can teach another. The context of both of these texts is surprising, endlessly surprising. I'm not sure if you can be surprised by something more than once, but I find myself constantly surprised by the fact that these uh, considerations of teaching and learning are in the context of his metaphysics of creation, where he's talking about creation the work of creation, and whether there are creatures of such a kind that they can, as it were, participate in the work of creation, collaborate in some way with God in the unfolding and development and progress of the creation itself. And this is the context in which he talks about teaching and learning, both in the De Veritate and in the Summa Prima Pars. So this setting is clearly theological and gives an exalted place to the work of teaching. And he's not just talking about teaching theology or teaching scripture, he's talking about any and all ordinary teaching and learning. It opens the door to thinking of teaching in the strongest possible theological sense, namely as undertaken by God, creation itself, may therefore be understood as a teaching, an illumination of the truth, which is the good of the mind. That is what teaching is, helping people to see the truth, which is the good of the mind. Any truth, which is always a good for the mind. It is therefore something which is done primarily and paradigmatically by God. So we're in a solid theological context where he talks about teaching and learning. For Aquinas, the greatest of teachers is, not surprisingly, I suppose, Jesus of Nazareth. His reasons for saying this align him with, rather than setting him against, the tradition among philosophers that Socrates was the greatest of teachers. For the world of sana doctrina, good philosophy, yes, Aquinas says, Socrates was the greatest. But for having the qualities of the good teacher even more than did Socrates, absolutely speaking, Jesus is the greatest of teachers. 
What are those qualities and how do we see them in Jesus? Well, they include skills like giving signs or illustrations, putting imagination at the service of understanding and provoking and stimulating thought and understanding through asking good questions. These are the first two skills of the teacher. Give good signs, images, illustrations, ask good questions, provoke, stimulate thought. And the third essential quality of the teacher for Aquinas is the love that the teacher has for the ones he's seeking to teach. Signs, questions, love. I like to recall a story told about Vincent McNabb, an Irish man who joined the English province. He's reported as saying that if you do not love the people to whom you are preaching, then shut up, go away and preach to yourself. And we can say the same about the teacher. If you do not love the people you are seeking to teach, then it is better to shut up, go away and teach yourself. In all three characteristics of the good teacher, Jesus was supreme for Aquinas. In the signs he gave, think of the parables, think of the miracles. In the questions he posed, how many questions Jesus asked throughout the Gospels. And in the love he showed, all three coming to a climax in his great act of teaching on the cross. Secret magister in cathedra is a phrase Aquinas takes from Augustine. Jesus on the cross is like a professor on his chair, like a master in his seat. It is from there that he gives his teaching. That's the most powerful sign. That's the most perplexing question. That's the most profound revelation of love. All of it in the cross, the foolishness of God that is wiser than human wisdom. So that's a second strongly theological aspect to the way in which Aquinas talks about learning and teaching. One is the, the, the context of creation. The second, Jesus is the greatest of teachers. And the question of philosophy and theology in regard to how we understand teaching and learning arises in another way, when we recall that three of Aristotle's intellectual virtues under their Latin names, coincide with three of the gifts of the Messiah spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, again in their Latin guise. These are knowledge, scientia, understanding, intellectus, and wisdom, sapientia. Three of the gifts of the Holy Spirit of which Aquinas speaks and which he sees as the crowning of all human experience. Taking this as more than a coincidence, this coincidence three of the intellectual gifts of Aristotle, intellectual virtues in Latin have the same names as three of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, uh, gives us another related field in which to consider the relationship between a philosophy of teaching and learning and certain aspects or levels of those activities, ordinary human activities of knowing, understanding and growing in wisdom that seem proper to theology, taken up into theological significance. Once again, to think about how sana doctrina, good philosophy, ordinary human activities 
are taken up into sacra doctrina, the work of grace in us, our union with God, and so on. So these three points uh, to begin with, the context in which the main texts are found, which is creation, the fact that Jesus is the greatest of teachers, the fact that three of the intellectual virtues of Aristotle coincide with three of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, it makes us wonder whether the context, the, the, the presentation by Aquinas of teaching and learning is not irredeemably theological, if we can use that phrase, irredeemably theological. So can we talk at all about a philosophy of education in Aquinas? Now, there might have been a time, second point, second main point, there might have been a time, and I think there was a time, when would would have felt obliged or tempted or inclined to try to extract from its theological context something that could properly be called a philosophy of education, so that it might stand up at the bar of public reason, as it were, be respectable in such a way that Aquinas could take his place in the community of the philosophers of education. Extract, thinking a bit about that word in my title, what would it mean to extract a philosophy of education from this solidly theological material? In his introduction to my book on Aquinas, the one that Richard mentioned at the beginning, published in the, it was originally the Continuum Library of Educational Thought, and then it became the Bloomsbury Library of Educational Thought because Bloomsbury published Harry Potter and became the most powerful publishing house in London and bought up <laughs> all the other publishing houses. So it's now in the Bloomsbury Library of Educational Thought. Professor Richard Pring of the University of Oxford kindly agreed to write a, a, an introduction to that volume. And he commented that even if people do not accept all the theological background to the ethical framework of Aquinas' account of teaching and learning, they should be persuaded of the importance of the questions themselves. He was referring to the questions raised by seeking to integrate the pursuit of knowledge and formation in virtue in the education of all young people. So um, the pursuit of knowledge and also education in formation in virtue to invite people to consider at least this possibility that education integrated these two aspects, character formation, as well as knowledge and skills. It may seem strange now that such a thing had to be, as it were, justified, but my own comment in introducing the book was along the same lines, that Aquinas' approach is rooted in theological convictions and is philosophically coherent. The implication being that although it is rooted in theological convictions, in spite of the fact that it is rooted in theological convictions, it is nevertheless philosophically coherent. So it's like a kind of picking out, extracting from the theological material, something that will be philosophically coherent, respectable, uh, accepted in some place. What place? We'll come to that. I come back to the point at the end of the book, and it was for me the most important question left hanging at the end. I referred there to Mark Jordan's comment that the summa of a 
Aquinas is only properly read and understood within a particular form of life. A book which can only be read and understood within a particular form of life. Now, not just moral and virtuous, but sacramental, contemplative and communitarian as well, is a very extraordinary proposition. Although at the time this was presented as a kind of postmodern development, it was also linked with Serti Lange's 1920 book on the theology and practice of study. And I'll talk more about that. And with the fact that Jacques Maritain and his circle in the 1930s studied the text of Aquinas in encounters that included prayer and a form of community life. So already even before what we call postmodern and um, we're seeing something of this, that here's a text which require, requires a particular way of living if it is to be received and understood. What Jordan calls Aquinas's pedagogical experiment challenges, he says, both the academic and the pastoral. My thought was that we might be tempted to ignore one side of this challenge the pastoral and the academic, either rationalizing Aquinas in order to gain him a hearing among the philosophers who may want to bracket God or even worse, or on the other hand, supernaturalizing Aquinas in some way to strengthen his position within the household of the faith. And one might add now to strengthen his credentials as a counter-cultural cultural warrior. Can one extract his sana doctrina, his good philosophy about teaching and learning from its context in sacra doctrina, in revelation and faith and theology? Clearly, there was a defensive aspect to my comments, and perhaps also to those of Professor Pring, including Aquinas in a series of studies of philosophers of education, needed some kind of justification, it seems as well as a health warning, lest his way of considering the question might disturb those sensitive to anything that smacked of theology or religion. But is such an extraction possible? That's my question today. Is such an extraction possible? To what could one compare it? Is it like removing a tooth from a gum, which is our primum analogatum of extraction, I suppose? thereby killing the tooth? Or is it more like removing a jewel from its setting, leaving both intact, each with its own integrity, but each less beautiful than it was when they were together? Perhaps you will have other metaphors or images to propose for kinds of extraction we might think about, from taking something out of some bigger thing. However, today, quite a few years later, it seems that this question has become more problematic. Ought one seek to extract a philosophy from within a theological consideration? Can it be done is one question, but should it be done is another question. What would make it necessary or desirable to try to understand, to try to undertake such a thing? Philosophers themselves have in the meantime helped to highlight the problematic character of the question, or at least in my meantime, <laughs> philosophers have become aware of in the meantime. 
have helped to highlight the problematic character of the question. Does it belong to what people call modernity? That there might be some objective place or space free from all prejudice and presupposition, a neutral space sanctioned by what we might call public reason and into which one can introduce a philosophy extracted from a theology. But that now seems like trying to see things from nowhere, seeking a kind of objectivity, which can only ever be abstract and separated, not for real. So I found myself looking again at some pages in Fergus Kerr's book, Theology After Wittgenstein, in those sections early in the book, where he considers what he calls the drive to spiritual reality, from which many contemporary philosophers cannot free themselves, no matter what their explicit intentions might be. Thomas Nagel, for example, the American philosopher from whom we get the phrase, the view from nowhere, uh, sees the drive for objectivity as an attempt to transcend the self and to find what is of interest independently of anybody's interest in it. To find what is of interest independently of anybody's particular interest in it. Charles Taylor is another witness for he sees the drive to objectivity in contemporary secularism and naturalism as simply the latest manifestation of the traditional drive to spiritual purity. Other developments in the meantime send us back to considering the validity of this question. We find ourselves in a moment which has been described as post-truth, not just post-modern, but post-truth, deluged with a notion of information, opinion and assertion, where the lines of authority to teach have become blurred, where the lines of credibility have become blurred, where the criteria for determining what is true and what is false have become seriously blurred. Is the human race now in a period of significant evolution even between now and 15 years ago, a process somebody has described as the emergence from Homo Guttenbergensis or of Homo Zuckerbergensis. The anxieties of an earlier period may seem something of a luxury when faced with the urgency of where we find ourselves today. In response, my inclination now is to say that even if we can extract the sana doctrina from the sacra doctrina, the good philosophy from the revelation, faith and theology, it's better not to do so. Better to leave the tooth in its gum and the jewel in its setting and seek to appreciate Aquinas's understanding on its own terms. So a third main point. Now in these times, postmodern, fake news, post-truth, alternative facts. <laughs> it is more important, perhaps essential, to see the jewel in its setting and to bring out what there is in the full context within which the philosophical resources are applied and integrated. I want to speak here about a very short work on learning and teaching, the letter to Brother John on study a text which was at times attributed to Aquinas, 
but which modern scholarship generally regards as the work of another author. It was written in response to a request from a young Dominican brother for advice about how best to study. The English Dominican Victor White wrote a commentary on it in the mid 1940s. He wanted it to be an authentic work of Aquinas and he treats it as such. He says he sees no reason why it should be rejected as a work of Aquinas, but most medievalists, paleographers, historians of critical texts and so on, regard it as a spurious work. In his classic work on the intellectual life, the French Dominican, Antonin Gilbert Sertilange, did not need the letter to be genuine, but like White, was convinced that it summarized very well some of the most important principles in Aquinas' own approach. So a letter to Brother John on study, at times attributed to Aquinas, now generally uh, regarded as spurious, not by Aquinas himself, but important for Sertilange in his famous classic book on the intellectual life, and important for Victor White in his presentation of Aquinas' account of teaching and learning. Sertilange published The Intellectual Life, Its, Spirits, Its Spirit Condition Methods just over a century ago in 1920. Its basic structure comes from the letter to Brother John on study, but its contents are drawn from the works of Aquinas, mainly the Secunda Secundae of the Summa Theologiae. It was translated into English in 1946 by Professor Mary Ryan, a translation which has itself become something of a classic, the English translation. I want to show you a photograph of Mary Ryan um, and say a little bit, I hope everybody can see this, um, say a little bit about her. Um, she, Mary Ryan, was the first woman to be nominated as a professor in any university in Great Britain or in Ireland. This was in 1910, when she was appointed Professor of Romance Languages in the University in Cork, later Professor of French. Now, one of her brothers, this is the lady who translated Sertilange's book into English in the 1940s. One of her brothers uh, was Patrick, better known as Finbar Ryan, who became uh, Dominican in the Irish province and was later Archbishop of Port of Spain in Trinidad. Another brother was Sir Andrew Ryan, who was a distinguished British diplomat, the last of the Dragomans, the name of his book, the last of the Dragomans representing the British Empire at the court of the Ottoman Empire. And Andrew Ryan, the other brother of Mary Ryan, was the father of Columba Ryan, who joined the English province of the Dominicans and died in 2009. Just a few years before his death, uh, Columba Ryan was in Cork for the dedication of one of the lecture theatres of the university uh, in honour of his aunt, Mary Ryan. So she's a woman who probably should be better known as the first uh, woman to be nominated as a professor in a university in either Great Britain or in Ireland. But she also did this, uh, this English translation of Sertilange's book, um, The Intellectual Life, 
which, uh, which is itself a bit of a classic. The English translation is itself become a bit of a classic work. Okay, Certilange then, just to say something about this, based on the letter to Brother John about study, but the main bulk of it from Aquinas's Summa on teaching and learning. Begin by creating within you a zone of silence, Certilange says. Begin by creating within you a zone of silence, a habit of recollection, a will to renunciation and detachment, which puts you entirely at the disposal of the work. Along with some very practical advice about sleep, exercise, recreation, note-taking, manual work, reading, times of the day, and so on, Certilange follows the pseudo-Aquinas text in speaking for the most part about prayer and moral virtue. It's not the mind alone that thinks, Certilange says. It is not the mind alone that thinks, but the human being. And his advice is holistic, keeping a healthy mind in a healthy body and a healthy person, if you are to learn and teach. Study is a prayer to truth, is another memorable phrase from Certilange. Study is a prayer to truth. As long as you are studying, that is seeking the truth about something, about anything, you are praying because all, the, all truth is from God and points to God, who is the truth, capital T. Hegel is reported to have said something like this to his landlady when she challenged him about not going to church on a Sunday. It's certainly one of the key principles of Dominican spirituality. Study is a prayer to truth, although we do also go to church on Sundays. Now, at the same time as Mary Ryan in Ireland was translating Certilange, Victor White gave a lecture to open the academic year at Hawksyard and again at Blackfriars, Oxford. This was the year 1944-45. Mary Ryan's translation appeared in 46. Victor White's lecture was on the letter to Brother John on study. As I said, he saw no reason to reject Aquinas's authorship of this little text, although the weight of scholarly opinion is against that view. In any case, the spirit of the letter and its contents are in accord with what we read in Aquinas's own writings about learning and teaching. Victor White gives a rich commentary on this short letter, and like Certilange, he moves far beyond the text, his presentation being for the most part informed by authentic texts of Aquinas, once again, the Summa Theologiae for the most part. Brother John asks for advice about how to study and he is given advice about how to live, is how Victor White summarizes the message of the letter. He asks for advice about study and he's given advice about how to live. The young Dominican is given, firstly, <clears throat> a list of matter-of-fact commonplaces like those we find also in Certilange's book. You must live well if you want to give yourself to study. You must have a clear mind and a pure conscience. Watch how you use your time, how you mix with others, 
how you discipline your life and so on. Pace yourself and get to know your limitations, practical, concrete advice. Some of the more important pieces of advice are to attend not to who says something, but to what is said. Very important principle in this letter. Don't attend as much to who has said something as to what they have said. The truth is in what people say, not in who says it, but what is said. Remember what you've come to know, understand it, and verify what is doubtful. Silence in particular is essential if thought and prayer are to be possible and with them progress in learning. Silence is very important. So Aquinas or pseudo Aquinas, white, certilange, they're not only talking about the study of theology, just to stress that again, they are talking about the intellectual life in general, human beings engaging with any research or investigation in order to know and understand anything and in order to communicate what they've come to know. They do not ask whether it counts as philosophy or theology, sana doctrina or sacra doctrina. They simply get on with talking about the practicalities recommended and the virtues required. But the fact that they all give such importance to silence and to prayer seems to identify their work decisively as a theology of learning and teaching, since prayer presupposes the virtues of faith and hope. Just to conclude this third section, a witness from outside the immediate fold of Aquinas can also be helpfully summoned here. This is Romano Guardini, working with young Christians in Germany in the early years of the Second World War. So a contribution almost exactly contemporary with Mary Ryan's translation of Certilange and with Victor White's presentation of the letter to Brother John. Guardini is in Germany trying to work with young Christians who are perplexed and in great difficulty at the situation in which they find themselves. With others, Guardini organized a series of conferences circulated also as booklets until their paper supply was cut off by the secret police. His aim was to restate in terms of contemporary life and experience the eternal, spiritual, and humane verities in order to help people confused and troubled by what was happening. Placed first in the collected conferences when he published them is a reflection on adoration. And this has always seemed to me to be a very striking thing coming out of this context of trying to help young Christians to find their way in this very difficult situation. The first thing is to think about is adoration. Considering the social, political and intellectual context in which they were given, it is very striking that this topic should be given prominence, the bowing down of creation before God, who alone is worthy of adoration. It is the safeguard of our mental health, Guardini says, and of our inmost intellectual soundness, pointing our loyalty and devotion in the right direction, adoration. It's the safeguard of our mental health and of our inmost intellectual soundness, pointing our loyalty and devotion in the right direction. Without any reference to Aquinas, Guardini just takes us back 
to the point from which we began with Aquinas considering the question of teaching and learning in the context of the creature's participation in the work of the creator. Guardini reminds us that remembering the truth of that is the safeguard of our mental health and of our inmost intellectual soundness. A comment of Newman comes to mind as well in the idea of the university where Newman is talking about why he thinks there should be theology in a university. And its function is not to tell the other disciplines their business, but to steady them. I think that's the word he uses, if I remember it correctly, that theology steadies the other uh, disciplines in their, in their undertakings. So the last part of my talk is anecdotal, but I hope something that further illuminates what I've been saying. It seems to me that there's been a shift across the years since my book on Aquinas was published. That was 2007, so 14 years. Uh, a shift which seems to make it easier to talk about the full theological setting of Aquinas' treatment of teaching and learning. Looking at how one successful uh, school, post-primary school in the UK presents itself these days, I just had a look at school that I know about, uh, I just had a look at their website to see how do they present themselves. This is an independent school, a successful independent school. I was struck by the language now used and by what seems to me, having been out of touch with these matters for some years, to be an interesting change of emphasis. The vocabulary used, this is a school presenting itself to parents and, and others, say this is what we think are, we're doing. Uh, the vocabulary used now includes terms such as creativity and innovation, a reference to heart and mind, to knowledge and imagination, to resilience and well-being. In other words, what is offered without using the terminology is an education in the virtues, honoring the distinctively human capacities of understanding and creativity. As I said, it is an independent school. Its origin is in one of the Protestant denominations where an explicit religious influence is not entirely absent, but is nothing like as prevalent as it once was. The aim which the school sets itself is to help youngsters not only to understand the world as it is, but, um, where is this? But to imagine how it could be not only to understand the world as it is, but to imagine how it could be. They're to be equipped with the skills, knowledge and self-belief required to do things differently, as opposed to simply repeating the actions of previous generations. Where 10 or 15 years ago, the emphasis might have been on critical thought and analysis, now creativity and innovation are added to those goals. A big claim is then made that the aim of the school is the transformation of young people's lives. And it commits itself to what may seem like an impossible task to prepare pupils for jobs that do not yet exist. To prepare pupils for jobs that do not yet exist, to imagine a future which is not yet present. The key buzzwords are innovation and resilience, as far as I can see. Now I know about this school through a good friend who taught there for many years and was very happy and successful in doing so. 
She believes the school was child-centered, caring and disciplined, particularly when the school head was summoned from a practicing Christian background. What she thinks the pupils lack in such a modern school for all its efforts and success is space. This was the word she used, space. Everything is a distraction, she says, and pupils do not have access to the kind of space that would have been created in the past by prayer, contemplation, or even boredom. Creating some such mental space would greatly help their overall mental health and resilience for life in general, she believes. Now you can see why I was struck by these comments about prayer contemplation and boredom. I had not shared anything more with her about this talk other than the fact that it was to be on Aquinas and education. And yet she spoke out of, speaking out of her 20 years experience in this very successful school, uh, she thought this was the one thing that the pupils did not have, a certain kind of space. I was expecting to see words like holistic and maybe even spiritual, perhaps mindfulness. But what is there seems to me to be a richer setting for the pedagogical activities of teaching and learning that go on in the school. There is still hesitancy about any kind of transcendence, let alone faith, except towards the as yet unknown future. So the only, the only thing, reality outside the present moment which is which is to be thought about and to be kept in mind is the future that is to be imagined the jobs that have not yet that do not yet exist uh, this projection um, which requires innovation and creativity okay but the implied anthropology seems to be an improvement on the knowledge transmission and transferable skills model utilitarian that dominated some years ago. Maybe it's an exceptional school. Uh, maybe it's, it's, not, uh, it's not unusual. Um, you, you, I, I'm assuming there's expertise <laughs> uh, listening to me that uh, can be shared later. So a conclusion. What are the vices that call, uh, of our time that call out for their corresponding virtues? Is it intellectual laziness? We've all fallen back on Professor Google and Master Wikipedia. Is it partiality? Is it arrogance calling out for courage, justice, humility and docility? What are the vices that are taking hold of us? Uh, and what are the virtues that we would need to be thinking about in order to counteract those vices? With differences of emphasis, the whole panoply of moral virtue is always engaged in the activities of learning and teaching. This is something that's brought out very clearly by uh, Victor White and Sertilange, that the whole panoply of moral virtue is involved, prudence, justice, fortitude, temperance, and all their, their little friends, the other virtues that go with them. One is tempted to ask, although it might sound a bit naff, whether Aquinas's sana doctrina, his good philosophy, firmly embedded in sacra doctrina, which is where we find it in revelation, faith and theology, 
is the vaccine, or at least one of the vaccines that the world needs for its current intellectual ills. Prayer establishes in our hearts and minds the kind of space needed if wisdom is to be ours. It is prayer that establishes in our hearts and minds the space needed if wisdom is to be ours. In his book, Aquinas at Prayer, uh, Paul Murray writes as follows about the place of prayer in the intellectual life of Aquinas. This is from page 11 of that book. He's relying a lot on Ken Ellen Foster's uh, work of, on biographical, biographical documents on, of Aquinas. Bernard Gee, in his biography of St. Thomas, notes that in Thomas, the habit of prayer was extraordinarily developed. One indication of this fact is that when perplexed by a difficulty, he would kneel and pray. In fact, Gide tells us that he never set himself to study or argue a point or lecture or write or dictate without first having recourse inwardly, but with tears to prayer. And what is more, he was prepared openly to acknowledge, according to Guy, that prayer and the help of God have been of greater service to him in the search for truth than his natural intelligence and habit of study. That by way of conclusion to my presentation, thank you very much for your patience and attention. Not so much the conclusion of an argument as an invitation to you to supplement uh, what I've said with your own observations and from your own experience. Thank you very much.